0: Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. One of the most fundamental questions that human beings are constantly asking themselves is what time is it? If you're like me, you're asking that a whole lot. I don't have a great memory, so as soon as I put my phone down, uh, I don't own a watch, I'm asking what time is it. Usually the answer for me is it's late. I'm just late to whatever it is that I'm supposed to do. Whatever time it is tells us a whole lot about what we're supposed to be doing. Um, we do this on small levels, like throughout the day, right? What time is it? Okay, I'm supposed to be over here, I'm supposed to be doing this. We also do this on larger levels, on macro levels. What time is it when we ask this question about the world? Itself, it informs how we understand and experience things. Informs how we see our roles and responsibilities. So we might look out at the world, and we might say, "Well, it's the modern era, and so we're modern people." And so we have these opinions, we have these type of behaviors. We approach authority, um, tradition, with these sorts of assumptions. Um, for for the Paul, the, the apostle Paul, um, who we'll look at this morning in, in the scriptures. Um, the question of what time is it is of vital importance to him. And, and for him, time itself has been warped, has been redefined, has been centralized in the person and work of Jesus, in the particular person and work of Jesus. The fact that roughly 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, the god Father, Son, and Spirit, became a human being. And it was the life and the work, the death and the resurrection of this first century Jewish man, which changed everything. If you have a Bible, I want to show you this. Open up with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is a black hardback underneath the seat around you. Uh, You're more than invited to to grab one of those if you'd like and uh, look at it with us. We have been going through the book of Galatians. We started it in, what time is it? Uh, Like 2012 and we uh, took a break. We're coming back to it. Advent is coming up um, very quickly. December second starts the um, season of preparation uh, for Christians as we prepare to celebrate the incarnation and Jesus' birth and, and Christmas time. And so we are coming back to the Book of Galatians. We're picking up in chapter four where we left off, and we'll finish out the book before Advent, and then go through an Advent series together as a community. Um, Galatians 4 is a great place to pick up after taking a break. Um, we'll see here in Galatians 4, Paul addressed the situation, the reason for writing this letter, and also give us what is, I think, the heart of what he thinks has happened in Christ and what it's supposed to cause in human beings and human communities. So let's read together. We'll, we'll look at the first 20 verses. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Quick break. The reason we're talking about heirs is because that's what he was talking about at the end of chapter 3. He's been on this question of who is in the family of God? Who's a son of God? Who's a son of Abraham? Who's an heir to the promises that God's given to people in the Old Testament? So he picks up with this thought. Um, he is under guardians and managers till the date set by his father. In the same way, he says, We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, if you're an underliner, if you've got your own Bible, if you're journaling this morning, um, there's some really heavy phrases here. This is one of them. The fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, when it had arrived, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, Or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, messenger, as Christ Jesus. What then, verse 15, has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, he's speaking here of false teachers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is writing to a series of churches in a city called Galatia. These are churches that he started And after he starts these churches, he plants them. He continues on his journeys, and he gets word that some false teachers have come into the churches, and they have started to corrupt the message, the good news, the gospel that Paul had left them with. And so Paul writes the letter of Galatians to correct this, to try to bring them back on track with what is the gospel and how it should be shaping their lives. In particular, some teachers had come, and they said that you needed to add something to Jesus. It wasn't just faith in Jesus that allowed you to be part of God's family was faith in Jesus plus something. And for these teachers, they were Jewish teachers, it was faith in Jesus plus the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, circumcision laws, dietary laws, things like that. Paul writes them. You can see his emotion in just this passage. You can see he's perplexed. He has some anxiety, some, some anguish. He, he uses the metaphor of a mother here. He says that he's like a mother as the, the, the kind of founding pastor of this church. He says, I'm in anguish like a mother in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is, for Paul, the goal of the Galatian churches and the goal of you and I as Christians, for Christ to be formed inside of us, for the life of Christ to take shape inside of our lives, for the mind of Christ to take shape inside of our minds. Sometimes we call this Christian formation. This is where you get this from. This is the goal. This is the maturity of all, following Jesus, of all worship, of all fellowship, it's that Christ might be formed. Now, in the original language, the Bible was written in Greek. This this pronoun at the end of that verse in nineteen, you Christ formed in you. It's plural. We read this so individually. Um, and and we say Christ formed in me as individuals, and there's certainly truth to that. As individuals, your mind has to be conformed to that of Christ. Your life is supposed to be conformed to the life and pattern of Christ, Um, but a a more literal translation would probably be the until Christ is formed in your congregations. It's a community thing. This is something that we often miss out on, I think, in the West. We think it's just God and me, and this is how Christ is formed. In fact, I'm I'm convinced Christ is only formed in the context of communities, the context of worshiping communities, and it's the Christ that we're we're being shaped into, the Christ that Paul wants the Galatian churches to be formed after, is a very specific person. At the very beginning of this passage in chapter four, Paul is talking about Jesus being sent, his son, and he says Jesus, the son, is born of a woman. Now. Besides being a throwaway phrase far from this, Paul here is trying to um, situate the Son of God, Christ, in a particular place at a particular time. This woman is a particular woman. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. They lived in Israel. Jesus was a first century Jewish man. When we talk about Christ, when we talk about becoming like Christ, when we talk about being formed into the shape of Christ— we have to be careful that we're not talking about like an ideal, like just the idea of love and goodwill, the idea of forgiveness. It's a particular person that we're being shaped into. There's a particular pattern. You can see it. You can watch it in the Gospels. You can hear him teach about what that pattern is like. The pattern of of Christian growth that, that we're supposed to be being formed in is illustrated when Jesus gets down on his knees, and he washes the feet of the disciples. It's serving, giving your life for others. And this is what Paul is wanting to see happen in the Galatian churches. This is what you and I as Christians are supposed to be on our way towards. But Paul says it's, it's been sidetracked. He's, he's worried that they've been sidetracked by a different gospel. If you go and you look at the beginning of this, this chapter here, um, you get in just a couple sentences, a few verses here, One of, I think, the most beautiful formulations of the gospel. Gospel being a word just for good news. For what it is that God has done in Jesus. And what it means for you and I. He uses an analogy. He talks about a child who's an heir. This is a a common situation in the Roman world. You have this child, he's an heir. So technically he owns everything, right? It's his. But because he's a kid, it's not his to do with yet. He can't play around with it. There are legal people set up to deal with that at a date set by the parents. He'll be able to um, exercise authority, lordship over his estate. He says, similar to that situation, you and I, humanity, we were children. We were in slavery. Unlike the child, we didn't own everything, but we were in slavery until a certain time. Until, he says, the fulfillment of time, the fullness of time has come. And this is when Jesus was born, when God entered into our world, when we were redemptively invaded by the very presence of God, the Son of God born from Mary among us for our salvation. If you've ever seen um, a model of how gravity works, or a model of like the theory of relativity, how space and time are warped together, if you understood that phrase, you know more about it than I do, um, but I've seen, I've seen certain models, and try to picture this for me. It's like a 3D plane, and let's think of like the orbit of our planets, right? And the idea is, the way gravity works is, say you've got this one big star, this big rock, and it's the sun. And you place it on this 3D plane, and it weights it down. It kind of warps space and time around it. And so then, because you've got this little dip, if you put other rocks around it, it rolls in a circle, and this is how gravity works. This is how orbits um, can be explained and predicted and hypothesized about. And this is what Paul is trying to get at when he talks about Jesus coming into our world, being the fullness of time. He's trying to say that this is like the sun of our orbit. This is when time reached its apex. This is when time reached its fullness. This is when all that God is and all that God was planning to do comes to fruition is unpacked right in front of us, in our world. There's a before this time and an after this time. And for Paul, to to get anything correct, you've got to know what time it is. It's the time after Jesus has come. It's the time after the Spirit has come. It's the time where slaves have been turned into children. It's the time where you and I who follow Christ are heirs. In the fullness of time, when it had come, God sent forth his son. Um, Most of us in here, all of us, uh, except for maybe a couple, remember pretty clearly what life was like before the terrorist attacks on on 9-11. At the university uh, that I teach at, I uh, enjoy the opportunity to teach students so much younger than I am that they don't really have that much of a memory, right? They're born like the 2000s, which is just crazy to me. 2000s, a little bit later, I'm an 80s kid, not much, 88, I barely got in there, but I claim it. And I don't remember a whole lot about before 9-11, but I do have some memories, enough that I know that there's a definite change. There's a fundamental change to a whole lot of things, not just how airports worked, not just the kind of security clearances you needed, but to how people thought of each other, to how people thought of uh, going out, traveling how people thought of other nations and relationships among kind of geopolitical friends and allies and enemies. There's a a pre-9-11 time and a post-9-11 time. This is but a small fraction of the weight that Paul wants us to feel about the incarnation, about Jesus coming into our world. Notice the double sending we have here. God sends forth his son, and then in a few verses after that, God sends his spirit God sends his Son, and then he sends the Spirit of his Son. Notice the the Trinitarian shape of this language. As Christians, we believe that God is triune, that there's three persons in the Godhead. One God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You have here God, the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit all here active and working for our salvation. God sends the Son, notice, to redeem us, to buy us, to free us. This is slave language. But it's not just to free us. God sends the Son, He frees us, and then He receives us as adopted children. You and I, with faith in Christ, sons and daughters of God. And as proof of this, the Spirit of the Son cries out in our very own hearts the same prayer as Jesus Abba, Father. Let me try to unpack this in a couple of ways. This, I think, is one of the most beautiful pictures of what salvation is, what the gospel is that we have in the Bible. If you look at the Gospels and you look at the person of Jesus, what you see is a person intimately connected to the Father, to the God of all creation. He's led by the Spirit of God. He's able to obey. He's able to experience joy. He's able to connect with the Father. He's able to live and fulfill his purpose, to find meaning. You and I were told... Because of Jesus' work, because of his death and his resurrection. We've been set free from whatever might enslave us. And we now have the same status that Jesus has always had. Sons. Children of God. What has been his from eternity is now ours as a gift in the middle of time. Abba, Father. This is an Aramaic word followed by a Greek one. This is a quote from the Gospels. This is out of Jesus' lips. You and I now get to stand in the place of Jesus. Another way to look at this, if we step back a little bit and and put on kind of more theological lens, if you think about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, what Christians believe is this community of persons and this perfect unity has always existed. And the Father has always loved the Son. And the Son has fully received the Father's love and has reciprocated it back to the Father in full. And the Spirit has been there receiving and reciprocating the love of the Father and the Son as well. There's been this perfect community for all of eternity. And what has happened is the stream of love, this relationship between the Father and the Son that's always existed, you and I, outside of this stream, have now been attached to Jesus. We've been, we've been, by grace, allowed to come in underneath this stream. And now we experience the love of the Father that He has had eternally and continues to have for his son. We're able to have the same type of relationship that Jesus has eternally with his father. We're able to walk in the same way. We're able to live the same type of life. Theologians throughout history have have looked at different ways to think about the Trinity. St. Augustine very famously imagined the father as the lover and the son as the beloved and the spirit as the love that flows between the two of them. Richard St. Victor, later church father, um, concerned that calling the Holy Spirit the love between the Father and the Son kind of depersonalizes him, would say that let's think of the Father as the lover, the Son as the beloved, and then the Holy Spirit as the co-loved and the co-lover. Sending this perfect love back and forth from all of eternity, and then at a point in history, invading into our world, and freeing and adopting. Notice we're, we're not just freed. God frees people who were in slavery, but he doesn't free them to this kind of individualism. He doesn't free them to this unrelatedness. He doesn't free them and then they're on their own, looking out for their own interest. He frees them into a family, into a situation, into God's very own family, the sons and daughters of God. He's worried, Paul is here, that the Galatians are going to go back to the slavery, that they're going to abandon all the privileges that come with being a son of God and are instead going to go back and worship and become enslaved to gods, lowercase g gods, who in nature aren't really divine. He talks about these elementary principles of the world that enslave humanity. Um, In the ancient world, what he's referring to is um, the ancient you know, would look at the world, and they would try to figure out what makes the world work. And then how can we live in the world in such a way that it works for us? And they were able to see there's some ordering principles to the world. It looks like there's some ways the world kind of works. And they actually went to, like, actual elements, right? There's fire, and there's water, and there's air. And then over time, right, they just get personalized into gods, and they're worshiped. This is kind of like the common sense. It's it's what orders the world. And it turns into these these false gods. Now, you and I, in the modern world, have abandoned the idea that we worship these kind of idolatrous uh, uh, gods, these, these false gods. Um, I'm betting you don't know someone who worships Zeus and all the other pantheon of gods that have been around for much of human history. I'm betting... You probably don't know someone who worships Mother Earth. I mean, Christianity, historically, if you look at it, world history, one of the things it's done is it's kind of taken out a lot of the polytheistic religions. And in its place, we often think, is left atheism, nihilism, lack of meaning. Instead, though, our gods have just gotten more subtle. We no longer talk about them religiously, but they're still there. And it's still the same things. It's how we think the world is ordered. It's how we think the world works. So our dominant way of living, you and I right now, just the world that we're born into, global capitalism, our world works, the ordering principles, materialism, competition. In a world like that, the way we participate is consumption. We consume. Our identity is as consumers. Our actions are actions of consumption. Even if we can't consume some of the highest goods, we consume people who are consuming the highest goods and in that way kind of weirdly participate. Following celebrities and and keeping up with the news. And the type of people this creates is a very specific type of people. It's people who are greedy and selfish, it's people who are materialistic, it's people who are short sighted, it's people who trust that violence can solve conflicts. And make no mistake, these, these elementary principles of the world, they enslave us. They shape us in ways that we are so unaware of. We think it's obvious. Think about how people will talk about the free market this way. People will talk about, like, let's just figure out what the free market is doing. How is it working? And then let's put ourselves in there. But the free market is not just this neutral thing that exists. It's something that we've created, something that we've structured, and now structures and creates us. We've become enslaved to it. But in Christ, we can be free from from anything that enslaves us. We can be transformed into a a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. These elementary principles, they've been broken. Their chains have been um, loosened around our ankles. And we're able to walk in a new life, in a new way. We've been freed and We've been freed and adopted, sons and and daughters of God. Now, one of the things this passage does is it highlights the truth that, in a very real and significant way, God Himself is the gospel, is the good news of salvation. And what I mean by that is what we receive as human beings because of Jesus' work, His life, and His death, and His resurrection, we don't receive something external to God. Sometimes we imagine we do, like like heaven. That's what we get. It's like a thing, a transaction, and God gives it to us. It exists outside of God. But that's not the case in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, what you get with salvation is you get a relationship with God. And in that relationship, you find all the other things, right? You might find eternal life. You find joy. You find peace. But it's this relationship, this Abba-Father filial relationship childlike relationship with the Father that is eternal life. That's why the scriptures can talk about eternal life starting now, being experienced right now. Because you and I, with the Spirit inside of us, at work in our communities, can even now experience what it's like to receive God's love, to mirror that love back to him. We can know God, or rather, as Paul says, we can be known by God. These are all real things for us because of what time it is, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's accomplished. To be sons of God means that we're intimate with the Father. It means that we know him and trust him. We lean on his goodness, his beauty. J.I. Packer once said, if, if being a Christian means anything, it means some realization that God is our Father that we exist in this type of child relationship to God. And we develop this intimacy with prayer. We develop this intimacy with, with fellowship. It means that we're freed. To be a child of God means we're freed from both the curse of the law, which Paul has talked about here. We're, we're freed not to walk in shame and guilt and fear. It's God's children forgiven and loved and accepted. We're freed uh, apart from all the other things that might enslave us in the world, these elementary principles of the world. And Paul will develop this over the, the rest of the book of Galatians, but to be a son of God also then means that we are led by the Spirit of God. For Paul, this is almost a definitional thing. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means to be led by the Spirit of God. It means to walk in the ways that the Spirit would prompt us. This is God's great gift to us. In the same way that legalists are led by rules or laws and hedonists are led by desires and materialists are led by their possessions. So children of God are led by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that prompts our actions. It's the Spirit of God that stirs our emotions, guides our behaviors, that works itself into the nooks and crannies of our lives all the way down to the very bottom details, the Spirit of God who is determinative in even what careers we take and the decisions we make on a day-to-day basis in our lives. And we don't have to fear or worry where this, this Spirit will, will lead us, knowing that he'll perfectly lead us into God's blessing for us. Now, when we, when we look at a passage like this, when I read about our adoption, my adoption, as a son of God, something inside of my heart gets a little bit of warmth. And there's a little excitement that happens. And there's this feeling of potential within me. Like something is available that is awesome, that I would want, that I want to lean into more, that I want to explore more, that I want to experience more of. Now, for some of us, and this was true of me at one point, that desire might not be there, right? The, the news that God is the gospel might not be good news to everybody. If you don't like who the father of Jesus is, it's not really a great story for you. There's a popular Christian author who once said, Look, if you, if you don't like God very much right now, I don't think you're going to like what happens in the afterlife. Even if you go to heaven, right? Heaven is being with him in his presence. If you don't enjoy that type of thing, it's not going to get better for you. We develop our taste for true goodness, true love, true peace. We develop our desires for who God is. Um, Often we come to God and, and when we learn about God and know God, we are tempted to deceive ourselves. Our desires can be deceitful. There's an author who puts it this way. For most of us, at least most of the time, the deception of our desires is subtle. They're not out and out corrupt as much as ever so slightly bent. So, for example, we delight in the justice of God, but at least in part because we imagine it means grief for our enemies. We delight in the power of God, But at least in part because we imagine it means we're protected from the suffering others have to go through. But he says this we're we're always until the end living at this risk, the risk of these deceptions, and countless others like them. But we don't need to panic, we don't need to despair. Even if we desire what is good in ways that are not good, we can rest assured that God will always graciously disappoint us. If what we find delightful in God is in fact an illusion. God has promised to go on revealing his true beauty until we find that beauty truly desirable. This is part of what it is to be formed in Christ, to become more and more of a person who finds their place as a child of God, who enjoys their status as one adopted into the very own divine family. And in the world that we live in with bombs being mailed and threats being made. It's a people who are led by the Spirit, I think, who are going to be a people with the moral compass, the moral weight available to them to navigate this world successfully. In the kind of world of temptations that we live in and darkness that can surround us, it's a people who hear the Spirit, who allow the Spirit in and through them to cry out, Abba, Father, who have this intimate connection with the Father. It's this type of people who will flourish We'll be able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death without any fear. Because they know who they are, and they know whose they are. They know what time it is. Being adopted into God's family not only means we're in relationship with God himself, it also means we find ourselves in a group of humans in relationship with God himself. The church, the body of Christ. Often, we're more easily able to understand a connection that we have to the Father himself as his children, and we struggle to make sense of how these people might be our brothers and sisters in this family. Sometimes we, we think of the church just like mutual friends on Facebook. Like we know the same person, but other than that, there's not too much that connects us. This is just simply not the case. To the extent, I think, that we discover our relationships, our commitments to one another in the body of Christ. The extent I think we'll be able to um, witness to the world, I think to that extent we'll be able to show God's love and God's light. To that extent we'll be able to be faithful. Freed and adopted. I'll end with a, a story. It happened a few years ago, and it's been in the news. It comes in on and off. You might see it on, on um, the internet every now and then. Um, there was a detective in Pittsburgh who was single. He was a bachelor. Um, he was known as kind of this rough guy. And one of the things he did in his free time was he volunteered at this boxing gym for um, underprivileged kids. Uh, and so Pittsburgh inner cities can be a pretty tough place. I grew up in Sugarland, so I know what it's like a little bit. Um, he has his kids come in. Most of them are not from very good situations. Um, he had these two boys in particular, like an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old, uh, who would come in. And he had this pretty um, cool relationship with both of them. And, and one day they stopped showing up. He was concerned, and, and, and he wasn't just about to let them disappear and not know kind of what had happened. So he uses connections, and he tracks them down. He's asking what happened, and he, he starts to find out some really bad stuff. He starts to find out the conditions they're in, the reasons they're not coming to the class anymore they're in foster care, they're orphans. And as can be the case in foster care, they're not in very good conditions. In fact, as a detective, he eventually says it was the worst condition he's ever seen a child live in in Pittsburgh. Living with rats and roaches, abused in all kinds of ways. But luckily, this detective liked those kids. And as a detective, he had some favors he could cash in on. He worked dutifully to get these kids out of this situation, to free them from these things that were limiting their potential in their life. But the story goes on because the way he ends up getting these children out of this situation is he adopts them himself. He not only sees these children in need, not only works to free and rescue them, But completes the process entirely by bringing them into his own family, by making them his own. This is you and I, the sons and daughters of God, orphans, lost, often more than we even realize. Sometimes content with what we have, not knowing what's out there, what's available. And yet we wake up to find ourselves in a story where God has not been content to watch us walk in slavery, but instead has freed us and adopted us. Instead of these false gods that we worship that create slaves that serve them, our God is less interested in slaves and more interested in sons and daughters. He's less interested in how we might serve him and more interested in how we might enjoy his company. His presence. As you and I worship this morning, I invite you to develop gratitude for this freedom and this adoption. I invite you to think through the implications of what it means that you have been adopted, what it might mean and how we treat other people, both within the church and outside of the church. As we come to the table in just a moment, we've rehearsed our participation with Christ, how we've been brought into the story. Become sons. May we lift up our praise to God. And may we allow the work of the Spirit to form Christ in us to continue. We pray with him. Father, we come to